In recognition of Cow Appreciation Day, we walk through the history of when cattle first arrived here in North America to present day. Well, you know, the first cow, we brought her in and she was wily, <laughs> tough. We, I, we, we call her domesticated, but far from the <laughs> yeah. domesticated kind that we have today. And Dr. Scott Shockey with Kansas State University is my guest as we discuss the history of our cattle industry and some of the landmark events or eras of time that impacted our industry. One of those events being about a Charlotte crossbred steer that went by the name of Conico. It's all here on today's episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Welcome you back here again. It's another episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills, and thank you for joining us here on our program. If this is your first time, whether you're listening on the radio or whether you've chosen to download it via podcast, we appreciate you taking the time to join us here on our program today. Now, something that I usually do at the at the very end of the program, but sometimes I actually completely forget, and that is a way for you to get a hold of me should there be a topic that you'd like us to cover here on our program or questions or comments about something that you've heard on our program. It's pretty simple to do. You can get a hold of me through email. My email address is justin.workingranch at gmail.com. That comes directly to my phone. Or you can give me a call at 307-363-COWS. The phone number 307-363-COWS. Well, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands since this is an audio program, but how many of you knew this past week was Cow Appreciation Day? Yeah, July 12th is Cow Appreciation Day. Well, I have to admit... I really didn't know that. And so once I became aware of that, I thought, well, man, we need to do something in regards to that. And so I reached out to Dr. Scott Shockey. He's with Kansas State University. As we're going to go through, kind of walk and talk through the history of when cattle first arrived here in North America, and then some of the, the, the things that happened between then and now that were major impact or influences on what the industry that we all see and recognize here today. And as I shared in the opening, if you want to find out what the steer Conico, what that story was all about, well, he's got firsthand knowledge of that as uh, as that was an animal that really did make a shift in our industry at a point in time and so you're going to hear about that that story here later in our program today so dr scott shockey kansas state university is my guest here today on our program of course at the very tail end of our program today meteorologist don day will be joining us with a look at our long-term weather right now a thank you to our sponsors of the working ranch radio show bobcat one tough tractor take a look at bobcat.com and you can use right there on their website the build and quote tool and you can design your ideal machine by going to their website bobcat.com also Gelby Balancer the smart reliable and profitable choice for more information go to their website at gelby.org and Zoetis it's the little things that could derail progress but your herd can be covered visit getlessparasites.com for solutions from Zoetis right now it's time to check in with the captain public and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. 
Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. We celebrated Cow Appreciation Day last week, and I shared something on our Facebook page from the Kansas Beef Council. It's a really cool meme. It's got four really nice photographs of cows out on the grasslands and in the corn stalks. And these captions, nicely done beef. You transform real roughage into real protein. Nicely done beef. You flourish where crops would fail. Nicely done beef. You convert grasslands into edible protein. And nicely done beef. You keep the land optimized and fertilized. Great meme. Kansas Beef Council, thank you so much for that. We do appreciate our cows. We love them to death. And on another note, all you tractor jockeys out there pulling late shifts and long hours in the cab and listening to music and podcasts and all kinds of interesting things, head on down to our sister channel, 56 The Highway, here on SiriusXM. And I'll tell you what, I'm usually a Willie's Roadhouse fan and not really much into the new wave country music, but the stuff coming out of Nashville and Austin in the last month or two, I don't know if it's because a lot of these uh, musicians got kind of holed up they're off the road for a year I'm telling you what folks there's some good music coming out of the highway there channel 56 check it on out have a great week Justin back to you in the booth alright thanks captain and I'm going to go with this the great minds think alike since you shared with some thoughts and, and things in regards to cow appreciation day that is also the focus of our program folks if you're just joining us Dr. Scott Shockey with Kansas State University will be my guest coming up we're going to walk through the history of when cattle first arrived here in North America all the way till now and some of the landmark things that have happened since then and also later on we're going to hear about that steer by the name of Conoco what is his significance to a landmark event that took place in our cattle industry? Well, stay tuned to find out when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. For commercial cow-calf producers, crossbreeding with Galvay and Balancer is the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. Galvay and Balancer females offer maternal superiority through increased fertility, greater longevity, and more pounds of calf wean per cow exposed. In the feed yard, Balancer cattle can offer increased performance, improve feed efficiency, and have excellent carcass merit. Balancers add the pounds, make the grade, and deliver the value. Gelby and Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to gelbate.org. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills. As I said at the top of the program, if you heard what we were going to be talking about today, this past week it was Cow Appreciation Day. And while every day of the year we do appreciate the cattle across our our ranches, nevertheless, there is that July 12th date where it is actually Cow Appreciation Day. So in that, I thought it would be interesting to go back and just visit with somebody about the history of where cattle came into the the country and, uh, and just where we've evolved to from there. So joining me today is Mr. Scott Shockey, who is the associate professor at Kansas State University. He used to be the livestock judging coach for over 20 years there, but also uh, here is more recently kind of putting more time in at, at uh, Shockey Farms as they're there out of the Flint Hills of Kansas. And Scott, first of all, I want to thank you for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. You bet, Justin. It's a pleasure to be with you. In fact, uh 
I had no idea we had a, a day uh, designated <laughs> for the beef cow, so that's kind of cool. I learned something yeah, already. This yeah, morning. well, you know, I honest, <laughs> I got to tell you, I honestly didn't know either, other than if you're on social media at all, everybody was posting. I thought, huh. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's my problem. I don't do Facebook. So. <laughs> well, uh, you know, so I, I reached out to you because I know you've done uh, some interviews in regards to just kind of the history of, of where the cow started in the country. And then also, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that, how things have evolved over the years, and then talk about where we're at today uh, is kind of the general direction I'd like to go with our conversation here today. And so let's let's go back to the very beginning really quick and what is your knowledge of you know when cows were introduced into the country into the united states or north america right well uh as i told you earlier i'm, I'm no expert on this but I, I love uh i love the history of the beef cow and and how we develop breeds and, and i think about all the breeds we have today and how they fit into our system and so if you go back and uh you know the literature the text uh you know columbus does received credit for bringing uh, the Spanish Longhorn uh, in the late 1400s to basically the West Indies on his second voyage and, and dropped him off there. And um, uh, as the literature tells us, it really wasn't until, um, you know, a few years after that, that Cortez brought uh, that old wild cow mm-hmm. into uh, the southern United States and, and uh, basically dropped her off in, in Mexico and eventually we migrate them up into Texas. So, you know, late 1400s, early 1500s is really the first time frame in which we've identified some form of the today's American beef cow being uh, introduced to uh, to this continent. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we saw the cattle probably expand quite a bit in the southern climates of the country just because the weather was a little bit more friendly to uh, those cattle continuing to, to go. As we saw Florida, Texas kind of being the two areas where we saw really a lot of predominantly these cattle expansions really starting to take place. Right, yeah, they they you know hung out in the southern U.S. for uh, well, honestly for for a couple hundred years until we started the great cattle drives and bring them up here to the to the Midwest and we stick them on uh, railroad cars and and uh, you know in some cases maybe both but more typically at that time it was more railroad cars and then shipped them uh, back to the east. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it was in fact the the Longhorn cow um, she was the only breed uh, that we had for nearly 300 years here in, in the United States until, you know, in, in the uh, late 17, early 1800s, we brought in the uh, the Durham cattle, or what we know them today as the shorthorn cattle. Yeah. Well, and now we, of course, if we're, we'll jump in today's here in a, in a little bit, the type of cattle that we're seeing more today, but that was really, like as you said, kind of the first introduction of, a, of what we would call our, our British breeds. And so from that standpoint, where was the crossbreeding or when did that start to take place or was it quite a, pretty quick when when they when those cattle came into into this country yeah you know actually as we as we uh introduced new breeds of cattle uh in the in the early 1800s um we brought in of course the Durhams and the herefords and then the angus and as we brought in these new breeds of cattle we quickly started mating them with the longhorn cattle and so crossbreeding uh started very very early and uh, by the necessity of, you know, taking the, the new imports and, and breeding them to what's here. In fact, um, if you look at the history of the, of the longhorn cow, the Texas longhorn cow, 
by the early 1900s, there was just a handful of them left. You know, one time there was millions of longhorns that ran through the southern part of our country here. And, and uh, as we started bringing new breeds in and crossing them, uh, the true longhorn almost went by the wayside. And uh, the government developed a wildlife refuge, which still today you'll find longhorn cattle. I've judged a few of those shows and I've seen a few of them. Uh, they got a big WR uh, hot brand on the rib and, uh, and they, they still represent, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've Americanized and we've changed them over the years, but they still represent some of the really traditional nostalgic forms and shape of the old longhorn that, that we once brought over, you know, several hundred years ago. So, uh, kind of neat, uh, you know, sometimes we question if the government does things that really helps everybody, <laughs> but in this case here, uh, the government actually saved, uh, you know, the first breed of cattle that we brought into this uh, to this country here. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the, another type of cattle, and that's more <laughs> the Boss Indigus type of cattle that came into the country. What was their time frame of when they arrived here? Uh, because they've been fairly prevalent as they are today that we see today in the southern climates of, of our country and into Mexico. Right. What what was the evolution of that breed into this country? Yeah, yeah, actually, uh, a lot of those breeds, the Boss Indicus breeds, um, we bring them in in the early mid 1800s and then we developed our own American Brahmin breed in the early, in the mid 1800s. And so, um, and, and, and I tell students today in class that a lot of the Brahmin influenced breeds or composite breeds that, that we associate with, you know, the, the Brangus, the Beefmaster, those breeds have actually, most of them have been developed here in the United States. And, um, you know, as, as Kansans and of course your country, Wyoming, Montana, uh, we don't we don't have much influence of that around here. We don't work with them much. Mm-hmm. But I always tell students that if, you know if you ever end up managing a ranch down along the coast, uh, this is one breed you need to become familiar with and how they can contribute to our system. And and still today, there's a lot of Brahmin influenced cattle that uh, sit down along the southern coast. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, too, one of the things that we see out there is, you know, people like this kind of breed or they like they have affinity towards this kind of breed and they kind of get defensive over those breeds. But the reality of it is, is there's certain there's there's certain breeds that just thrive way better. And it's going to be more of a geographical issue and not really about, well, I like this kind of a breed. And so when we when when people kind of get into these uh, matches with each other about, well, this breed's better than this breed, really, there's some of this that has to do more with geography of where they're located and what kind of cattle is going to thrive in those country, in that kind of country. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And, and, and the American Brahmin is a good example. You know, I, I think over time we can select cattle to fit in an environment, but that takes time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the selection pressure is just strictly for environment being able to adapt to it, whereas the American Brahmin, those cattle are built for that, uh, that humidity, that atmosphere. I'll, I'll never forget uh, a few years back I was in – in uh, Louisiana in July. I don't know if you've ever been to Louisiana in July, but it's not yeah. a great experience <laughs> driving through the country down there going through the swamps. And, uh, and it's just a classic example where as you drove through that country, the old Brahmin cow would be out grazing in the middle of the day when it was, you know, hundred and some degrees and seemed like 200% humidity. And, uh, and the only black or red cows you might actually see, they were laying under the shade and they probably didn't come out till, you know, till evening to graze. So, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, 
you know, what you said about certain breeds fit in certain environments and climates, that's a really good example of how the American Brahmin really does have to kind of fit in, or a percentage of it, into yeah. our systems down south. You bet. You talked a bit about uh, the Texas cattle drives that moved cattle up through the uh, up and up through you know your area, Kansas, and, and of course we have mm-hmm. movies mm-hmm. or TV shows about some of that to all the way to and look in our history books to see where that migrated them cattle migrated up north. And so let's talk about these cattle drives because that really did start to expand the cattle herd and get cattle into you know definitely parts of the country that had been uh, were not developed, but we saw a, a tremendous amount of expansion with that going on right yeah yeah i was uh you know again you you, you watch the movies you read the text and and you can only envision um as we drive down the highway today going 80 mile an hour you're thinking how in the world do you get livestock from south texas new mexico mexico uh to abilene kansas and the number of days it takes when you're moving them just a few miles a day um you know between the diseases the weather um the wrestlers you know everything that's involved and doing it all on horseback with just a limited number of cowboys uh, that had to be a painful process and they do that maybe to make a dollar ahead when it's all said yeah, and done yeah. so um but yeah they're you know they 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 talk about the great drives and you know how many thousands ahead they might start out with and then by the time the the drive is over there might have lost as many as 50 percent depending mm-hmm. on you know the time of year and what diseases it might have run into mm-hmm. the time frame for the what we're considering the texas cattle drives the big cattle drives really was in 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 our history of america was really relatively short though but it it did take place but when you look at it from a time standpoint it it was relatively a short era of time yeah most definitely and then of course uh you know, the railroad sets in and that changes movement of livestock a lot. You know, when we when we started driving cattle and started utilizing the beef cow for a source of protein, um, you know, the first packing plant was actually built in Kansas City, uh, which was kind of follows right in with the with the great drives. We started driving cattle from Texas to Kansas in the you know, eighteen sixties or so and then by the late sixties we built a packing plant. And then, of course, we put the product on a rail car or maybe in some cases uh, by ship or boat and head it down the river and start moving things to the east. And so, again, just the, the development of the railroad, a system of moving cattle other than by horseback really changed the, the location where all these cowherds were located. Mm-hmm. My guest today is Scott Shockey, who is associate professor at Kansas State University, but uh, even more importantly, he likes to be known as a rancher because that's what they do as well at Shockey Farms. They're uh, located out of the Flint Hills of Kansas. We're going to continue with more, and uh, Scott, you were just talking a little bit about where we started to see the beef processing uh, industry start to pick up and get started. We're going to talk more about that when we come back. You're listening to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Living in the country means working in the country, and that calls for a tough tractor. Well, Bobcat has 15 models in its compact tractor lineup from 21 to 58 horsepower. With the help of your local Bobcat dealer, you'll find a perfect match for your property and to-do list. Get a look at all the different models at Bobcat.com, and while you're there, use the Build and Quote tool to design your ideal machine. Get yourself one tough tractor from one tough animal, Bobcat. Visit Bobcat.com. 
And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills. My guest today is Dr. Scott Shockey. Doctor, I forgot to mention that earlier, Scott. I've, I've you know, when I feel this, I, I, I guess I feel this. If you put in that much time and effort to get a PhD, then we need to make sure that we call you Dr. Scott Shockey. So. I don't know about that. It's funny because uh, I grew up farming ranch with my mom and dad, and uh, I just assumed as soon as I get out of high school, I'm staying home to ranch and farm with them. And, and they're like, no, you need to go to college. This is back in the eighties when yeah. it was tough, yeah. it was tough sledding and agriculture. And, and, uh, so they brought me to Kansas state, dropped me off. And, you know, 10 years later, my dad's asking, are you ever going to get to school? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just, I tell the students here, it's like, uh, don't, don't worry about the doctor part. I'm just proof that, uh, you know, if a person puts enough time and effort into it and, pays attention you can actually get a phd so it doesn't bother me <laughs> well i'll tell you what i still got to commend you because there's a lot of people that go to college for 10 years and barely walk out with an associate's degree these days so, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. so at least you have something oh, to prove yeah. <laughs> yeah. so yeah all right let's get back okay. in this last week folks if you're just joining us was cow appreciation day and maybe you didn't know there was a cow appreciation day but there it was and while we all appreciate you in the ranching industry our cattle and our livestock and what we're able to do uh, year round it is one particular day out of the calendar year where it is noted so that is kind of the focus of our program here today we're getting an idea of when, when cattle started in the country and, and we've talked about the breeds of cattle where they started and in the last segment we were talking about the great texas cattle drives and how that started to expand the cattle herd across the country scott uh, when we left we, you touched a little bit about uh, the first uh, packing plant that was built in kansas city in 1868 and so we with that and the expansion and and of course the addition into our country of the railroad that really expanded and allowed the consumers really what we now consider to be consumers that weren't raised on ranches and in cities to actually get a beef product and so let's talk about that segment of our industry that started to expand in the early 1900s and and how that evolved yeah, um, it's amazing and how quickly it happened, too. But, yeah, we go from um, really kind of not using meat as a protein source to now by the mid-1800s, uh, Americans are starting to really enjoy the, the taste, the you know, the value of it. And uh, really, by 1870, um, Chicago has become the, the hub for the packing industry. Um, I don't I don't read very many books at all. But when one of the things that one of my professors made me do, I did my, my graduate work in meat science, but um, he made me write a, read a book called The Jungle that was written by Upton Sinclair. And it talks about the packing industry and its development and focuses on, you know, things that happened in Chicago. And as a result of that, uh, it led to the Meat Inspection Act. And boy, if you want to... <laughs> A real eye-opening experience, and again, you kind of place yourself in that novel. You're placing yourself in into the time frame and thinking about, uh, especially if you've been through modern plants, thinking about what those mostly men did in there and, and how we harvested animals. Holy smokers, that is yeah. <laughs> makes you shake mm-hmm. to think about it. But you know, in Chicago, when they start building those plants, and even today, and even here in Kansas City, you'll drive by an old armor plant or, or parts of it. Um, they still kind of exist. Uh, most of them were built along the river, mm-hmm. so we could ship the product out. Um, it, it's just uh, an industry that had really kind of got started and just absolutely boomed 
um, until the early 1900s when we kind of started moving things out, you know, away from the big cities. And we developed the feedlots out here and, Mm -hmm. you know, as far as north as your country, clear down to West Texas and all these feedlots being developed in in this part of the region. And then, of course, with the feedlots came the packing plants. And so today you'll find a lot of the bigger plants kind of established out here in western Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, you know, Mm -hmm. through that region. Mm -hmm. You touched on the point of the feedlots starting to be a a segment of our industry because back in the 1800s, it was really a grass-fed type of an animal product that we would see Mm -hmm. because there really wasn't the volume of farming or feed developed that we see today. And so that's really been a a segment of our industry that's probably been a, a you know, really evolution since we started to see i'm guessing probably tractors and, and the industrial revolution yeah right yeah yeah you know uh, originally uh you know the, the term term horsepower is, is named for a reason because <laughs> we use horses we use oxen for uh for draft purposes and so a you know a big large animal that again we didn't feed them things seven dollar corn like we do today <laughs> uh they basically were raised on on grass and mm-hmm. And so you're right, the, the first beef that was consumed was never, ever, um, you know, grain-fed beef like we know it today. That that really didn't start until the mid or early 1900s where we started feeding livestock grain when, when everything started shifting to the western part of these states and and the development of the, of the feedlot uh, era. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what continued throughout that entire process was the continual demand for red meat that drove that ability, you know, just we needed more beef. We needed more beef product out there, and that continues yep. to, we continue yep. to see that here today. Um, you said you had done, uh, you'd read a book or some of your, your undergrad or your studies was in meat science. And so from from that standpoint, as, we, as we've seen these expansions of, of the the packing industry in that uh, there's was expansion to a point and then we saw some consolidation in that in process as well and that one might have been through the 70s and 80s as well maybe touch on that just a little bit yeah um it, it's kind of like a lot of things they they get bigger uh more sophisticated and um as as our demands their consumer demands changed a lot of the plants you know changed and um, one of the things, you know, a lot of people are like, well, we should just build our own packing plant. And holy smokers, you think about what goes into a packing plant, um, and especially a modern plant, the technology. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those deals where, um, there, there's just a lot of time, money, investment technology that goes into to today's modern industry as compared to what we did back in the, you know, the, the mid 1800s getting started and, and um, meat processing so mm-hmm. it's a whole different ball game mm-hmm. i want to get into in just a moment here kind of where we've seen the the cattle in terms of size type and kind those kinds of relative topics we're going to talk about that in just a little bit but if you if you look back say let, let's start from about uh let's go from 1950 or and when cattle were first introduced and maybe we've already hit it a little bit what were maybe some key what were maybe some key elements that you thought were probably the most significant to our cattle industry if we start from when cattle were here till about 1950? Uh, well, you know, the first cow we brought her in, and she was wily. 
<laughs> tough. We, I, we, we call her domesticated, but far from the <laughs> yeah. domesticated kind that we have today. And, and, uh, even up in your country, I bet she'd make a few cowboys scream yeah. when they climb oh, yeah. on a horse to get her in. So, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of the changes that our industry has seen has been created by consumer demands. Um, the change in the kind of cattle that we had back then and what we're raising today was really um, because, you know, we're starting to to look at inputs and what it costs to, to raise beef, uh, to, to raise a cow-calf. And, and so we look at the, you know, the efficiency, the ability to convert, uh, utilize ground that maybe we can't build a you know, a half a million dollar home on because it's too steep or whatever, but we can dang sure use the beef cow to utilize that, that kind of terrain. So there's a lot of things that have changed, you know, beef cattle and in terms of confirmation and type and kind that has really been driven just by the economics of it. Mm My guest today is Dr. Scott Shockey, who is associate professor at Kansas State University, a former livestock judging coach for many years at Kansas State and also uh, part of uh, Shockey Farms there in Westmoreland, Kansas. We're going to continue with with uh, Scott after this. We're going to get into, uh, with him being a livestock judging coach for many years, uh, I know uh, he's, he's seen the pictures. I know some of you maybe have too of where we've seen a cattle evolve from, from where they were and, and the the ebb and flow of that breeding and where we've seen from short cattle to tall cattle and middle-sized cattle. We're going to talk about that when we return here as we recognize this last week was Cow Appreciation Day and that's kind of the focus of our program here today. We'll be back when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Whoa. Herefords are the efficiency experts for a reason. In crossbreeding systems, Herefords boost pregnancy rates by 7% and add $30 per head in feed yard profitability. And Hereford genetics bring unrivaled hybrid vigor, longevity, and disposition. Now that'll stop you in your tracks. Come home to Hereford for more pounds, more calves, and more profit. Visit Hereford.org for a sale near you. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. My guest today is Dr. Scott Shockey with Kansas State University, also with Shockey Farms out of uh, Westmoreland, Kansas. And Scott, I appreciate you taking the time here out of this week to join us. You know, a little bit ago we were talking about these cattle drives and uh, how these guys were doing it through these hot summer months. And you and I were both both talking about that uh, this the, as we were doing our, our conversation here today, had got up early this morning to move cattle because it was cooler and we're we're dealing with 90 degree weather here and, and those guys did it every day and they were moving cattle all the time yeah. so <laughs> but, yeah and um, they did it on a horse i did it on a side yeah side. <laughs> <laughs> there you go yeah so we were talking about where we've seen cattle change i put the i put the date of 1950 in there and it the only significance to that is i felt like from about 1950 on we really did start to see some some big advancements being made in cattle genetics and of course tech some technology was being used there but then we saw uh, as you were saying a bit ago the consumer demand was starting to drive uh, the economics in our in our ranching industry and it's way different than it is now but it was a turning point I feel around in that 1950 point so let's talk about the type and kind of cattle that we start to started to see evolve and I know that folks I know you judge a lot of cattle 
you've seen a lot of cattle and for for guys up in the range country we're not really big on the show ring side of things but nevertheless it has also been a model where we've gotten to see some of the ebb and the flow in the cattle types and kinds of cattle so let's talk about that and how that changed from about oh maybe the late 1950s all the way up to where we're at today yeah yeah you know uh early 1900s they were great big just late maturing cattle and then uh, americans wanting more beef and we had to change the maturity pattern the size and so we just bring them way back and and i'm sure you have a lot of listeners that can remember these because i do and i'm not that old yet but the belt buckle cattle yeah. you know and that was uh, the 40s and 50s and, and even going into the 60s they were little bitty early maturing fat uh, we needed that change because we needed more beef. We didn't need the big late maturing kind as we started the feedlot era. We started feeding those kind of cattle. And, and so by 40s and 50s, we were really focusing on three breeds of cattle. That would be the Herefords, the Shorthorns, and the Angus. And and it's fun to look back on those, uh, you know, and even remembering because my family fed cattle. And I remember we had them little short dumpy things in the feedlot and just little bitty toads. And and uh, one of my favorite stories to tell students, I had uh, the opportunity to work here under Dr. Don Good at Kansas State. And a lot of times before he officially retired and left the university, I'd sit in his office and just hear stories that him and Dr. Miles McKee would tell about, you know, cattle and cattle shows and cattle people. And he told the story about uh, in 1969 when he used Conico as the grand champion steer uh, at the Chicago International. And that was the first Charley Cross, Charley Angus steer that crossbred steer that had won that particular show. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, Shocky, I wasn't sure I was going to get out of that show with my hide because he <laughs> said you could hear a pin drop uh, when somebody comes in here and uses a crossbred steer that has never, never, ever won a show of that size uh, compared to normally it's, you know, a big uh, purebred steer that would yeah. win. And so we look at the, at the carcass stats of that steer. He was a yield grade two, low choice, mm-hmm. weighed, uh, you know, just shy of 1300 pounds, just absolutely. Uh, and today we would call him a very, very acceptable steer on the rail. Uh, as, and, uh, and, and, and the reason I guess I mentioned that is because that was really one of the things that changed our industry a great deal because, the USDA yield grade had been implemented just prior to that show. And Don Good, of course, mm-hmm. he's in academia, and he was well aware of the need to make cattle leaner and heavier muscled. And so he went in and selected a crossbred steer that was just that. And, uh, you know, prior to that, we were all used to producing the little short fat ones. And so with implementing the yield grade and eventually a quality grade, suggesting that if we eat too much beef fat, we're going to die of a heart attack tomorrow. You know, all that mm-hmm. kind of changed the kind of beef cow that we, we needed to produce. And so we went from the little short belt buckle fat cattle to by the 1980s, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I showed them and, and a lot of us did great, big, tall. I told my boys, you'd have to have a corn crib full of corn <laughs> to feed them things. They yeah. were big and late maturing. And, you know, we were breeding them as two-year-olds, the cabin as three-year-olds. And just from a production, it just didn't make sense. Yeah. But we thought that was the direction we needed to go to make them leaner and, and less fat. And so we got kind of carried away and and uh, created a bit of a monster there. And so one of the things that Dr. Miles McKee always said, and I, I remembered sitting in on his lectures, that the pendulum continues to swing our industry. And when you think about cattle type, and and uh, and that's exactly a, a good example uh, in our lifetime, you know, 
the 1950s and 60s, a little short fat cattle. And then by the 80s, we had them too big and tall and, and not enough product. And then we're kind of swinging the pendulum back the other direction. So it's a, it's a continual process. It hasn't changed over the years. And sometimes what happens, we hit the ideal endpoint and we just seem to go a little bit too far and, and go too extreme the other direction when we kind of pass the, you know, the perfect spot, I guess, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's definitely very interesting to look through those pictures and, and, and I, and I know for folks that probably out in the range country, uh, you know, you're thinking, well, we don't do those, we don't do it to that extent. And maybe we don't, but there was a little bit of that. I can remember, you know, the types of cattle, breeds of cattle that we saw and, and guys were crossbreeding to in the eighties is different than what we're seeing a little bit here today. Um, I want to talk about then if we look from about maybe 1950 till now, and I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked you before. And what are some key, if you were to say, if you were to look back over the last 70 years and say these advancements, two or three things, these were huge to what's shaping our cow that we see today, what would that be? Oh, first thing that comes to mind is just the world of genomics. Um, you know, the, the ability to be able to map out genes and identify at a young stage if this animal has the ability to gain and, and carcass traits. And, uh, you know, there's some, some things we can't measure, but just the whole, uh, the whole idea of genetics and its value and, and the progress we can make through genetics has, has changed, uh, I think, our industry a lot. And maybe sometimes for me, and again, I, 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 I use it as a tool in my own personal herd, uh, but I just use it as one of the many tools that we have because I, I have also seen, uh, and I have a few of them cows that, mm-hmm. boy, I've, I've lost some, you know, whether it be udder structure, feet and leg problems. So it, it, it's become a balance, at least in our program, to, to use the, the world of genetics, but also I still go back to what my dad had taught me and, and my grandparents, you know, they were in the cattle business. You still got to pay attention and we don't measure other structure. We don't measure foot quality yet Mm -hmm. with a, with an EPD that's maybe quite as accurate as some other traits. And so we still, I still think it's pretty important to pay attention to those kind of things. But I, I think one of the biggest things that has changed our industry is, has definitely been the the world of, of genomics. And then, um, you know, as we get into uh, this this whole deal with uh, you know the the war and and grain prices and uh, world hunger and and again the battle do we feed corn to cows or do mm-hmm. we feed corn to people and um, I think we're still going to and and I know there are parts of the world y'all have been through it uh, when it's dry and tough you really look for that efficient kind of a, a of an animal livestock that can get it done on minimal feed and we've done a good job over the years. Uh, but there's probably still more room for improvement on that. Mm-hmm. You know, too many eight out of 10 years, we're not paying $7 for a bushel of corn. We're paying, you know, three and a half to $4. So it's not that big a deal, but boy, the years where we're feeding cattle, we got to pay that kind of money. Uh, you realize efficiency becomes a, you know, a big part of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, those are, I know there's a lot of things, but I just, I think from a cow calf standpoint and, and really the whole industry is, um, those are the two things that kind of come to mind pretty quick that I think mm-hmm. have made a big difference in the kind of cattle we have today. Mm-hmm. I, I would have thought maybe, and maybe when you say genomics, this is kind of an encompassing that, that maybe it has said the ad- utilization or more utilization of, of artificial insemination. And, and is that, when you were talking genomics, is that kind of under that umbrella? 
Yeah, yeah, and and actually, uh, you know, I, I also I also think about the world of embryo transfer yeah. uh, today. The use of IVF, and uh, and I have former students that are embryologists, and uh, in fact, a couple of them do my work. And uh, I also say, you know, you got a great business and great product, but I think we've also have kind of misused it because. Uh, again, it, some breeders like to do it, but is there value in collecting and flushing a virgin heifer that's never laid down in calf? Because we don't really know anything about her maternal instincts, her ability to raise a calf and, and milking ability. And, you know, and so again, I, I think sometimes that has become, um, Maybe in, in once in a while, I think a little bit of a detriment to our industry because we're flushing a lot of young cattle that haven't really proven that side of, you know, mm-hmm. dairy industry does it all the time. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, I think, a little different than our industry where we got to have that beef cow go out and, you know, she might have to cover 100 acres a day just to get enough grass to stay alive mm-hmm. and um, let alone raise a calf. So, but yeah, those things are yeah. important and, and we still don't use ai as much as we should i don't think um you know there's a lot of commercial producers that are using it but here in our country around here it's still probably a lot more common to go out and buy bulls and turn them out and not even worry about using ai as a as a breeding tool mm-hmm. um you know for their program yeah as we wrap up here a final question i've got uh, is if we to if we were to look ahead and, and from your perspective uh looking into the future of the beef industry the cattle industry as as we are doing this show in recognition of cow appreciation day and looking ahead what what do you see our industry looking like and I know this is kind of a tough question, away because I don't even know if I'd have a good answer for this. But what what do you kind of see this beef cow looking like in the next ten to fifteen, twenty years in our industry? What it's going to look like? Well, yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think efficiency is going to be a big part of it. We're always going to be challenged with trying to do more with less, whether it be less grass, less feed. Um, you know, I I think too we we have a great story in agriculture and and not as many people understand our story as they once did. And so still education is a big part of it. Um, you know, we, we have to be, um, active, proactive. We have to make sure that, um, we do things right, uh, humanely. Uh, so much of this is a perception that people that have never been around it, they don't quite understand it. And so, you know, we just have to, we just have to pay attention. And we, as producers, I think we all do a great job. That's not an issue. It's just the perception that maybe mm-hmm. the other uh, people have is how, how we run our practices and our programs. But, uh, you know, I, I still, I really think the number one thing it's, it's going to have to be efficiency because we're going to have more people to feed and probably less, less acreage to, to raise the bovine on and, and, uh, maybe less feed sources. So it's going to have to be a, I think a huge challenge someday for, to get it all done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, good comments there to kind of end on one more, one more question. I always think of one more whenever you're answering and that was, and I didn't really give you an opportunity <laughs> to do this when we started our conversation, but real quick, talk about your operation there at, uh, there in Kansas at Westmoreland. Well, uh, yeah, I grew up farm and ranch in the Eastern part of the state. And we always had, uh, you know, we had the little Angus cows in the fifties and dad bought Charlie bulls and, and, um, and then we, end up using scimitar bulls on the Charlingus cows. And so I had a very 
fond love for Simmental cattle at a very young age. You know, by the by the 70s, we had quite a few Simmentals running around. And so uh, once I kind of started slowing down a little bit on uh, on the coaching side and having a little more free time, we ended up putting more Simmental cows back together and kind of had our own little program going up here north of Manhattan. So currently we have 125 or so cows we put in. Oh, 30 to 50 embryos and have a bull sale, have a bread heifer sale. We have a couple of online sales. We, we try to cater, uh, really to all markets. We try to raise a few show heifers for kids. Cause I have a, a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of value in the junior mm-hmm. programs. Uh, but we also produce seed stock for their Simmental breeders. And then in the spring we have a commercial bull sale and, um, and try to supply bulls, not only to other breeders, but maybe more of a focus on the commercial side. So mm-hmm. we try to do it all. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like so many times when you, <laughs> I don't know that you're good at anything. You just kind of got a little bit of everything, but, um, I enjoy that because I enjoy, breeding cattle i think it's a it's an art it's it's tough it's challenging and i i really like to do that mm-hmm. a lot of fun well i should appreciate you taking the time i know as i said earlier this morning we waited a little bit because you had to get some cattle mood in the cool of the day so i appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the uh, working ranch radio show you bet good to hear from you and uh, if you get any extra moisture send it to kansas please <laughs> okay all right dr <laughs> scott shockey with shockey farms my guest here today he's out of westmoreland kansas as you said talking a little bit about his operation today we were talking about uh just the history of the cow breed cow and the breeds in the country and how they came to be and how we've evolved here over the years since here in present of 2022 uh by the way if you do want to find out more information about shockey farms and what they do there you can go to their website uh, now shocky spelled a little bit different than what you what it sounds like but it's spelled s-c-h-a-a-k-e so shockyfarmsinc.com is their website where you can find out more well stay with us when we come back meteorologist don day joins us as we take a look at our long-term weather what he says is kind of boring well we'll find out what that means when we return on the working ranch radio show Starting off in the right direction is essential to gaining an advantage later when you go to market your calves. And I have proof that the right direction is with Sim Angus Sired Calves. A 2020 study by K-State showed that Sim Angus Sired Steer Calves earn more at sale time than all other breed identified sire groups with at least 50 lots represented on Superior Livestock's 2020 summer sales. The proof's right there. For low-risk, high-potential calves with earning potential, be confident that Sim Genetics will give you more per head, period. Stand strong, Simmental. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. We're joined now by meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. And uh, Don, as we were talking before we went on air here, we're talking about uh, I just need it to be a little bit cooler and a little bit of rain and make it this perfect environment for us up here. But then again, if it's perfect, then we might have everybody moving up here. (laughs) That's right. I mean, one thing about living uh, where most of the United States is, which is in the mid-latitudes, is the... You go through extremes and you have these episodes to where, boy, it's too hot. It's too cold. Mm-hmm. You know, when is it ever just right? And usually it never is except for moments. And it's those moments we remember when it's just 
Perfect. And I guess that is when those are the special days yeah. when you get a good rain and then it's cool for a couple of days afterwards. But uh, we are kind of uh, entering into the time of year that is the hottest time of the year mm-hmm. for the nation. And so this is when the complaint line goes up yeah. in terms of people complaining about the heat. Are your highest complaint months kind of about six months apart? Uh, they really are. You are correct. <laughs> it's either really cold or it's too hot. Right. It's usually January, February. And then, you know, so you're right. So it's about, you know, right around that six month time frame uh, to where we get that time of year because it's been warm enough, long enough now that it's starting to grate on people's nerves for sure. <laughs> and we really do see a very warm stretch of weather here for another week. Yeah, we do. You were talking about that in your daily video podcast that it is kind of a boring time of the weather year because we're it's just kind of the same thing. And we see the uh, we see the high that serves as an open and closed door moving either to the four corners area of the country to back over around Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas area. And it just kind of moves back and forth. And as it does that, we see that monsoon moisture going one way or the other. Yeah, that's right. High pressure tends to dominate most of the lower 48 states as you get into July and most of August. The jet stream retreats way up into Canada and uh, we just stopped talking about storms and, and fronts coming out of Canada and the Pacific. And you mentioned that high. And it's very natural, very typical in the summer season for a large area of high pressure to be centered over the, the central United States. And that wobble west and that wobble east you mentioned really does kind of regulate the amount of subtropical air that is let into the United States, either in the western United States with that North American monsoon or open the door to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, allowing very humid air to get into the Gulf Coast states. And then that is the air that feeds into the Corn Belt, uh, you know, making the corn grow with Mm -hmm. that higher humidity air and bringing those showers and thunderstorms that we uh, count on in the summer season. You know, the next phase of our weather pattern in the summer is the tropical phase, which is, are we going to see the tropics get going? Right now, it's been very, very quiet, even in the Pacific uh, with tropical activity. But as we get into August, later this month, that's something we'll be talking about for folks who live in the southeast and the east. Mm-hmm. Let's talk uh, long term, but maybe near term, if that's counter, kind of contradictory of terms there, I realize. But as we are approaching the middle of July here and looking to the latter half of July, do we continue to see this hot weather across most portions of, say, the Midwest uh, to the northern Rockies and down into uh, the southwestern part of the country to continue to remain? Or are we going to see that start to fade a little bit or even get warmer? Well, what we're likely going to see is is where it's hot now is where it's likely going to continue to be the hottest, uh, at least here over the next one to two weeks. And so that would be from part of the Southern Plains, from Central and Northern Texas through Oklahoma, Kansas, uh, into parts of the Western Corn Belt. And that would include the Northern Plains, uh, east of the Rockies, uh, down into those Southern Plains. And the reason the heat there will be the most extensive is because that's going to kind of be the average position of this dome of high pressure to where, uh, while there will be attempts of some cool fronts coming out of Canada to kind of knock down that high pressure ridge, more often than not, it's going to win. Now, either side of that ridge axis, whether you're going to be in the eastern corn belt or the southeast or in the southwestern United States, that's where the heavier moisture will be, the more clouds and the better chances of precipitation and temperatures won't be as hot. So if you want the hottest part of the nation, it's really dead center part of the U.S. So I am continuing to be concerned about Oklahoma, Kansas, 
uh, parts of Nebraska uh, really being the hottest and also the driest. Mm -hmm. uh, around the edge of that high pressure ridge, we'll continue to get these series of thunderstorms, that ring of fire, we called it, to cool things off. But it really does look like that right in the middle of the nation is going to be the hottest and the driest. Okay. All right. Well, Don, thanks for joining us with a look at our long-term weather. Thank you. Meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. His website can be found at dayweather.com. And from that point, if you'll find the link within that website to his daily video podcast, if you want to find out what's going uh, on for weather across the country every Monday through Friday morning as he kicks out that video podcast, or if you're savvy with YouTube, you can find it there by going to YouTube and searching Don Day Weather as well. Well, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to talk about an exciting program. I'm looking forward to having next week. I'll tell you what that's about as we put a wrap on this week's show. We'll return on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Day Weather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Day Weather Weather Journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. Well, it's been a fun program here today as we celebrated Cow Appreciation Day. That was actually earlier this week, but it was a good way for us to walk through the history of the cattle industry here in North America. Dr. Scott Shockey out of Kansas State University was my guest. I appreciate him joining us as well. Ironically, I find it interesting that our topic this week really does kind of tie back to last week's show. Dr. Scott Howard out of Colorado State University was joining us as we were talking about the new generation carcass. Take a listen to that if you haven't had an opportunity to do that well coming up on next week's show we're going to be talking about how long-term forecasts can help us with stocking decisions now i think this is a big topic and i'm excited to share this with you this was a topic that meteorologist don day pointed me towards and i'm looking forward to bringing that show to you next week so be sure to tune in at the same time same place or on your favorite podcast provider the working ranch radio show is a production of working ranch magazine branded number one by America's Ranchers. If you don't have your subscription today, you can get it started by going to workingranchmag.com. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long. <laughs>